I'll invite you to turn your Bibles once again to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We've been teaching a series that we've entitled The Spirit-Led Life. And we're using as a beginning point 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23 where Paul, speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, said, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Now that's the word completely or entirely, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Sanctify you entirely or completely. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've talked about man on three dimensions. Man is a spirit being. He's made in the image of God. He's the only uh, created being. He's the only thing that God created that is a spirit being. Now, when I talk about creation, I'm certainly talking about that from the Genesis account forward concerning things here on the earth. We know that angels are spirit beings. But they're not in the same class of man because of the things that happened before where uh, one-third of the angels followed Satan or Lucifer in rebellion against God. Uh, Two-thirds of the angels remained with God, and those are the angels that God uses uh, on our behalf today. Um, I'm not sure exactly how many angels there are, but um, where the Bible talks about Jesus coming back with his angels at the uh, end of the the tribulation period, it talks about... uh, uh, hundreds of thousands and thousands and thousands. If you multiply all those numbers out that it makes mention of, it's a hundred trillion angels. So God's got enough for you and me. Those are spirit beings, but the Bible says that they were sealed once the one-third went with uh, Lucifer and he was defeated and cast out of heaven. Those angels were sealed. The Bible says that the angels desire to look into our salvation. Now, what's the difference? If they're spirit beings and we're spirit beings, what's the difference? Well, one is where we live. Certainly, they live in heaven and do the the work of God. The Bible calls them servants. We here live on the earth in a physical body. And that physical body is uh, simply the the suit of clothes that we need to to interact with this natural realm. But the Bible says that they desire to look into our, our salvation, meaning they no longer have a free will. They exercise their free will. One third went with Lucifer, who are reserved in chains under darkness until that last day. And two-thirds are operating as the servants of God. They see that what you've got is better than anything they ever had. Otherwise, why would they want to look into your salvation? It doesn't say they look at our salvation and think, well, you know, that's okay for them, I guess. No, they look into your salvation and realize that you've got something more than they do. Because they are spirit beings, but it doesn't say anything about the Holy Ghost living in them. So man is a three-part being. He is a spirit. He has a soul and he lives in a body. The soul is identified as the mind, the will, and the emotions. We certainly can identify the body. That's easy. Just pinch yourself. It's that that responds to the five physical senses. But the spirit is the most indistinct or unknown part of man. And so many times the the church world, by and large, just looks at themselves as mind and spirit. Well... The Bible tells us some things that are really interesting about the new birth. And and notice that Paul is praying that you be sanctified or preserved or made separate and holy, H-O-L-L-Y, in all three parts of your being, spirit, soul, and body. So God must have some kind of plan. If the Holy Ghost inspired Paul to say this, then God must have some kind of plan for the development or the preservation of your spirit, your soul, and your body. Now, you know as well as I do that that billions of dollars are spent every year on the development and the training of the human body. 
I mean, just the fitness industry. If you just looked at the fitness industry itself and instead of any of the other things and aspects of life that have to do with the physical body, look at the money that's spent on that. If you add health care and, and that kind of stuff, I mean, look at the billions and billions, maybe trillions of dollars that are spent on the development, the preservation, and the training of the human body. Look at the billions of dollars that are spent on our education system and the, the research that's done scientific and otherwise, all throughout the world. That's probably in the trillions of dollars too, to educate the mind, to train the mind, to develop things in the middle realm, the intellectual realm. But to what degree is there development or training in the human spirit? Where's the research done on that? Where's the effort in this natural realm and the emphasis for the training of the human spirit? It's certainly as important as the rest of them. Paul starts with the spirit and works through the way out. He doesn't start with the body. He doesn't say body, soul, and spirit. He says spirit, soul, and body. He starts from the inside and works his way out. Because the spirit is the eternal part of man. Well, where's the training for the human spirit? Where's the development and the emphasis or the, the interest for the training of the human spirit, the development of the human spirit? Where's that? I would submit to you folks, you can't find much of that even in church. And certainly don't find anything outside of church. Well, why is that? Explain to me why the human spirit, which is the most important, the most significant part of the, of the makeup, the threefold makeup of man, because it is the eternal part. Why is there so little emphasis on that, even in church circles? God expects your spirit to be developed and to be trained and to be educated just like your mind and just like your body. Nothing wrong with uh, intellectual development. Nothing wrong with education. Unless it comes at the expense of your spirit. Because your natural human thinking, all the education that you learn here on the earth, which, by the way, every bit of education that, that they have, um, that these trillions of dollars are spent on every year, every bit of that education in the intellectual realm comes from the five physical senses. Every bit of research comes from the five physical senses. Scientific research is all about experimentation. What can they observe? What can they identify? So every bit of the intellectual uh, education that we get, all the training, all the development, all the money that's spent is on the five physical senses and that which we can learn from them. Well, that's not eternal. You're not going to carry a natural education. You're not going to carry your master's degree to heaven with you. Unless it's a master's in spiritology. What about the physical development, physical education, physical training, things like that? Well, the Bible says that that's profitable for a little while. Godliness is profitable for a little or profits a little. Some people throw off on that and say, well, the Bible, see, Paul's saying that doesn't amount to much. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it will profit you for a little while. It has profit here on the earth. We should take care of our bodies because your body belongs to God. Paul said so. So we should take care of our bodies. We should be fit. We should take care of ourselves and, and be health conscious to the degree that it, it keeps us going. Now, I'm not advocating being a health nut because a lot of people do that. A lot of Christians do that at the expense of their spirits. But to the degree that you can train or develop or, or take care of your physical body where it does not take away from your spiritual development, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. That profits you for a little while. And that little while ends when either you die or when Jesus comes back. But again, we're back to spiritual development. What about spiritual development? Do you know that you can develop your spirit just like you can develop your mind? 
You can train your spirit just like you can train your mind. You can develop your spirit just like you develop your body. And you can train your spirit just like you can train your body. Now, how is that going to take place? Well, let me remind you of two scriptures that we've looked at previously. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4 and John chapter 6 and verse 63. Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So what is Jesus saying? Well, he's certainly not saying that spiritual, uh, that uh, mental development, the development of the soul is based on the word alone. That's not the life that he's talking about. He's not talking about his physical life in and of itself. Now, the word can benefit in both of those areas. But he's talking about spiritual life. Man shall not live. The life that Jesus is concerned with is spiritual life. He's saying spiritual life is based on the word of God. So if you're going to develop your spirit, it's going to have to be based on the word. John chapter 6 and verse 63, Jesus speaking about the difference between the spirit and the flesh. He said, the flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit that quickens or makes alive. He said, and the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Which means the word of God is the only thing that's designed or given to us to fit educate, develop, and train our spirits. Paul speaks of this a little bit in Hebrews chapter 4. He said the word of God, Hebrews 4.12, he said the word of God is quick and powerful. Another translation says full of life and power. Thank God it is. It's full of life and power, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. That's real easy to tell the difference between the inside of man and the outside of man. The body's easy to identify, but you get to talking about the difference between spirit and soul, and sometimes that gets a little little muddy. Sometimes that becomes indistinct. Well, the Word of God's the only thing that can do that. Why? Because the Word of God is the only thing designed to fit your spirit. It's the only thing designed to feed your spirit. It's the only thing designed to educate your spirit, and it's the only thing designed to train your spirit. Now, to, turn with me over to uh, first. Uh, what's that word I'm looking for? First Corinthians. Look with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Folks, there are four specific steps to train your spirit. We've been talking about a couple of them already and we haven't identified them. Step number one to training or developing or educating your spirit is to meditate in the Word. We looked at Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8 where God, and, and the principles are the same in the New Testament as in the Old Testament. God doesn't change. Spiritual things don't change from Old Testament to New Testament. The application of them might, but the principles are the same because God's the same. And God told Joshua the way to success. He said, this book of the law, that's the only word of God they had, the book of Moses, or the books of Moses, first five books of the Bible. He said, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. First thing God told Joshua to do as the leader of the children of Israel is to meditate in the word. Now, why didn't he tell him to go train for battle? Why didn't he tell him to take a leadership course? Why didn't he tell him to do all the natural things that people do when they're training or developing or, or trying to, to uh, prepare themselves for some position? God said to Joshua, the best preparation you can have for the position I've given you is the Word of God, and that is to meditate in it. Now, one of the meanings of the word meditate is to mutter, M-U-T-T-E-R. That means to say to yourself over and over again. To say to yourself over and over again. So he's telling Joshua, say the word to yourself over and over again. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein. Thou shalt meditate therein. What's he saying? He's saying never stop speaking the word. 
Here's the key to success. Never stop speaking the word. Never stop speaking the word. Now that sounds like a daunting task to some people because they don't understand what it means. Never stop speaking the word. You're better off taking one scripture and meditating on it, saying it to yourself again and again and again. And I would encourage you to take a scripture that applies to whatever your situation is. For example, if you're fighting off sickness, take a scripture regarding healing. And say that scripture to yourself over and over again. Well, how long do we do that? Well, God told Joshua to do it day and night. Well, how many days and how many nights? Have you ever noticed over in... uh, Ephesians chapter 1, when Paul's writing the letter to the church, he spent three and a half years in Ephesus, longest place that he ever spent, longest time period that he ever spent in any one place. He spent over three and a half years in Ephesus. He had a chance to teach them and, and minister them. He even said to the, to the elders, the leaders of the, of the church at Ephesus, the last time he met with them, he said, I haven't held back anything from you. He said, my hands are clean. I've told you everything I know. That sounds pretty good to me. I'd want to know everything Paul knew, wouldn't you? That's what Paul told the leaders at Ephesus. He said, I've given you everything I've got. Now, in writing to the church, he told them, he prayed for them that the eyes of their understanding, another translation says the eyes of their spirit would be opened. He prayed for them to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus, that the eyes of their understanding, their spiritual understanding, in other words, would be opened. Why weren't they already opened? Wouldn't it be nice if everything that you heard the first time just went right into your spirit? Wouldn't that be lovely? It doesn't work that way, though, does it? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing. Folks, everything of God comes by hearing and hearing. Knowledge comes by hearing and hearing. Wisdom comes by hearing and hearing. How do you keep hearing it? By you keeping saying it. By you continuing to say it. That's why God told Joshua. He didn't tell Joshua, you'll read these tables day after day after day. Here's my instruction to you, Joshua. These Ten Commandments and all the other things that Moses said, I want you to read those those scrolls. I want you to read those parchments. I want you to read whatever they're written on. Read them every day. Now, that would have been a daunting test. That would have been impossible for him to do. But that's not what he told him to do. He said, meditate in it. Meditate in it. The more you meditate in the Word, the more your spiritual eyes open to what's being said. You know, it's a funny thing. I grew up in a church, grew up in a denominational church. Lovely people. They love God with all their heart. I didn't know. Nobody talked about victory. I don't think anybody really thought you were supposed to have it. And there wasn't a whole lot of victory in people's lives. I mean, you know, people lived normal lives and they got by and, and stuff like that. But looking at us from the outside, the, the church group that I was part of, looking at us from the outside, you really couldn't tell the difference between us and, and, and people in the world at least from the lifestyle that we lived. You might be able to see a little difference in the the rules that we followed that the the people that were unsaved didn't follow. But as far as the end result, if you just take religion out of it and look at people's lives and compare them, there wasn't any difference between us and other people, us and people that didn't know God. And, boy, that was a frustrating thing to a lot of people. I remember that being talked about a lot. Why doesn't God make things work out better for us? We're serving Him. We read the Bible every day. And that was a big part. Boy, they'd teach us, read the Bible. Well, you know, as a kid, you hear Bible stories. And Bible stories excited my imagination, but it never made me think I could do the same thing they did. I'd hear about David and Goliath. I didn't start practicing with a slingshot. 
Because the, the idea never was. And, and I, if somebody ever told me this, I missed it. I don't think it was ever even said that you can do the same things. Because God's with you, you can do the same kind of things as they did. You can accomplish and, and overcome impossible things just like David did with Goliath. It was just a story. And so we'd read the story and it'd excite our imaginations, or mine at least. It would excite my imaginations. I'd put myself in that position. Oh, man, wasn't that great? And all this kind of stuff. It didn't make me think I had something from God. Then I got a little bit older, and it wasn't just about Bible stories and Sunday school stories. Then people started telling me I needed to read the Bible. Well, how do you do that? Well, the only way anybody had any idea of that was just start reading chapter by chapter. If I got anything out of any of that, folks, I don't remember it. And so instead of daily Bible reading being something that fit or educated or trained my spirit, it became a chore. And first time, first thing I do is look and see how long is this chapter going to be. Come to a long one and my, my face just fails. Oh my God. Get to Psalm 119 and, and just want to slash your wrists. I mean, that thing's forever. But see, so many people think that the Bible is about Bible reading. And it's not. At least it's not intended to be. You're better off taking one scripture that pertains to your situation and meditating on it, saying it to yourself again and again and again, than you are reading chapters. When I got around Brother Hagin, well, I say got around him, I don't mean personally. I mean when I first became acquainted with Brother Hagin through tapes and stuff like that. I heard him talking about using the Bible like a tool. I thought, who in the world does this guy think he is? Clearly, he's not Baptist. (laughs) Then I heard him say he used to be a Baptist. I thought, man, that's a different Baptist church than I'm used to. He started talking about taking scriptures. He started pulling one scripture out of Isaiah 53, like where healing is concerned. He talked about pulling Isaiah 53 out and comparing it and setting it next to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I'm thinking, what's he doing? You don't do that. He started talking about scriptures about Jesus and how Jesus healed. Well, yeah, of course, that's Jesus. And then he showed us where Jesus said, you'll do the same works that I did. And he said, Jesus really meant that. And I thought, who is this guy? Because he started talking about the Bible like it was something written to us with instructions on how to walk in victory. Man, that was new to me. That's what God's telling Joshua from the beginning. He's saying, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you'll meditate therein day and night. How long do we meditate in the scripture, Pastor Mike? Till your eyes are open to it. Now, for me, on some scriptures, that's still going on for years. Still going on for years. But I've got enough of a taste of victory now to where I'm never going to give up on it. Because I know that some things that I just think, and and bless my heart, some things you don't know what's there that you don't see yet. Other things, it's like, you know, I know there's something there, but I'm just not getting it yet. Well, both of them are good for me. Because the ones that I know that there's something there, I'll stay with it knowing that good news is around the corner. But other things that I think I've got, then God surprises me with out of the blue, opening my eyes to something I didn't see before, and I think, wow, where did that come from? I hope you've got similar experiences where you can relate to what I'm saying. If not, find scriptures and meditate on them. Find the ones that pertain to your situation and meditate on them because you will have the same experience. That's the Holy Ghost's job is to open your eyes to the truth.
But it doesn't happen the first time you read something on the page. So if you're going to develop your spirit, step number one has to be meditate in the word. Has to be meditating the word. Jesus said it this way. He was talking to his disciples and he said, let these sayings sink down into your ears. Well, he can't be talking about physically. Because if he's talking about physically, then that would mean they would have to get below wherever Jesus' mouth was to say these things so that they could come down. Well, that'd be stupid. No, he's talking about sinking down into your spiritual ears. He's talking about letting those, those scriptures sink down into your spirit. How do you do that? By saying them to yourself over and over and over again. By saying them to yourselves again and again and again. Folks, meditating in the word is the most important thing you can do in a, as a Christian. It is the single most important thing you can do as a Christian. It's the key to victory. It's the absolute key to victory. Well, that brings us to the second step. Joshua 1.8, God's still talking to Joshua. He doesn't give him a whole lesson. He just tells him how to do it. He says, this book of the law, or the word of God, in other words, shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Now, why do you want to meditate in the word day and night? That thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. Now, the church I grew up in, again, lovely people, wonderful people. They love God. On their way to heaven. No question about that. But as far as doing the word was concerned, it was keeping the rules. That's all we understood about being doers of the word. And I don't ever remember hearing the phrase till I heard Brother Hagin say it. I guess I never got over to James chapter 1 in my Bible reading. So doing the word, obeying God was all about keeping the rules. Well, those were tough. Because basically the rules were, and, and, and we didn't, we meaning the young people, we didn't see the rules from the Bible. We just heard our parents and the leaders in the church tell us what we couldn't do, which was pretty much everything. And so the rules were all about everything. The basic rule was do what we tell you, and then it'll make God happy. Well, what about the things you don't tell us? What about things that, that aren't covered in the rules? Well, if it's something you'd enjoy, God wouldn't want that. So the rules were pretty much beat yourself up all day long. Figuratively, the rules were pretty much do whatever you wouldn't want to do, what do whatever wouldn't satisfy your flesh, do whatever you wouldn't enjoy, and that'll make God happy. Well, that warps your idea of God. I think that's where a lot of kids have come out of denominational church backgrounds with a real warped sense of who God is. I wound up thinking, at least to some degree, I had a little bit of experience because I got saved so young. I had a little bit of experience, so I didn't swallow the whole thing. But I was fast developing the idea that God was sitting in heaven with a giant fly swatter, just waiting for me to land. And anytime something bad happened, God always got the credit for that. And we always pointed over to somebody, well, they must have done something. Must have been some sin in their life, whether we knew it or not. There's some cause because God is just. And it warps your idea of God. But folks, being a doer of the word is not intended to bring you pain. Being a doer of the word is, supposed to, is intended to bring you into victory. Brother Hagin started talking about being a doer of the word as believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth so you receive things like healing. So God met your needs financially. I'm thinking, what? Huh? Where does this guy get this stuff? And then he proved it with Scripture. Amen. 
Can this possibly be true? Part of me on the inside was jumping up and down, turning flips, saying, oh, this is the best thing I ever heard. And part of me was saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. My head, my spirit was all for it. My head was saying, wait a minute. Now, and here's the first thing I heard. Here's the first doubt regarding Brother Hagin's teaching that I ever remember. If that were true, your church pastor, your Baptist pastor would have told you. I found out that one wasn't right. He might have if he had known. But that was the first thing. And it's interesting to me how many people will turn away from the word because of what other church teachers will say. Because I remember that one clearly. I remember that voice ringing in my head just as clear as a bell. Now, wait a minute. If healing were true, your Baptist pastor would have taught you that. And he didn't, so it must not be. I grabbed that for a minute. I took a hold of that and I thought, well, Maybe that's right. Maybe I need to think about that. And then all of a sudden, I said, wait a minute. He just proved it with the Bible. He just took those scriptures and proved it. Now, again, I had a hard time because he's pulling scriptures from different places. I didn't know you could do that. I thought it was a match set. (laughs) I didn't think verse 12 worked unless you read verse 11. I I thought it was just a, uh, I thought it was like reading a novel. Really, that's all I had an idea about the word. James talks about being a doer of the word. James chapter 1, verse 21, he said, put away all the things, superfluity of naughtiness, all the King James translation that means nothing to us. He's saying, lay aside the hindrances that keep you from being doers of the word. That's really what it means. And receive with meekness the engrafted word. Lay aside everything else that hinders you and receive with meekness, that means to be teachable, the engrafted word. Engrafted word. Engrafted word. Folks, the word is not engrafted until you meditate on it. The way you change it from being the words on the page to the words that are engrafted into your heart or into your spirit is to meditate in them. It's almost like God's confirming what he said back in Joshua. Who knew? So he said, receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Now we know he's writing to Christians. So the saving of the soul can't be the spirit, can't be being made a new creature in Christ Jesus, can't be talking about the new birth. So he's got to be talking about the renewing of the mind that Paul speaks of in Romans 12. The renewing of the mind. So he's saying the word of God will not only make you a new creature, change your spiritual condition or your spiritual nature, but it'll also change your mind. It'll change your way of thinking. But then he goes on, James goes on from verse 21 in chapter 1 to verse 22, and he says, but be ye doers of the word. And not hearers only. So there must be a difference in meditating in the word and doing the word. In other words, you can meditate to know what the Bible says and never act on it and it won't bring you results. So doing the word has to be step number two to developing and training the human spirit. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Now he says something really interesting. He said deceiving yourselves. Another translation says deluding yourselves. I think we've got a lot of self-deceived Christians. As a young boy, I was self-deceived. Because I knew what the Bible says. I had one. I mean, everybody has a Bible. We took it every time we went to the Wednesday night meeting so you get extra points going, working towards your award. Never needed it for anything else. But everybody had one. So there's... No way that I can't say that I don't have access to what the Bible says. There's no way that I could claim even as a young boy. There's no way I could say, well, I didn't know what it says because I could have gotten in there and read for myself and trusted God to show me what he needed me to see. 
I still had the Holy Ghost as a young boy. I wouldn't have had any excuse. I couldn't stand before God and say, well, the old folks didn't teach me. That might have been the best thing I had going for me. So there's a difference between meditating in the word and doing the word. It's doing the word that brings results. James goes forward forward and says later on in that that first chapter, a couple of verses further, he says the doer is blessed in his deed. In other words, you're only going to be blessed by the word to the degree that you do the word. Now, God told Joshua, now, if God knew what he's talking about, you know, if God knew what he's talking about, God said the keys are meditate in the word and then do it. Meditate by saying the word to yourself over and over again. We understand from other scriptures that that means so that it brings revelation, brings understanding of what the Bible says belongs to you. And then step number two is do the word because that's when you get blessed. That's when you get results. It's not from reading chapters. It's from meditating and doing. That's why we never got any results because all we were doing was reading chapters. Didn't get anything from it. And it didn't show up in our lives. Now, we love God. Again, I'm not criticizing the people. They love God with all their heart. It was sincere. It's just that they didn't get any of the things that the Bible says belongs to us. So God told Joshua, this book of the law, this word of God shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that for this purpose that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. Now, what do you do? What happens if you meditate in the word and do the word? What happens then? He goes on in the last part of Joshua 1.8 and says, for then... Then means following, doesn't it? Following, meditating, following, doing the word. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. Then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. Notice God didn't even say he'll do it. That was one of the biggest surprises. I got, I was surprised to find this out by meditating in Joshua 1.8. All of a sudden it dawned on me one day that God didn't say that he'd make their way prosperous, that you make your way prosperous. For then you shall make your way prosperous. And then you shall have good success. One translation says you shall deal wisely in the affairs of life. Well, that makes sense. That's a good translation because you couldn't have good success unless you dealt wisely in the affairs of life. Right? Now, folks, everybody that you know that is successful, I'm talking about celebrities, I'm talking about politicians, I'm talking about great men, statesmen, statesmen and, and so forth. Everybody that you know of that has some measure of success has a skill in some area. Donald Trump must be a good businessman because I can't see anything else that would make this guy rich. (laughs) President Obama must be a good politician or campaigner because I can't see any leadership abilities that's making him successful. Celebrities are successful because they're either good at acting or because of the way they look. Some people are just successful because of the way they look. Well, none of those things are going to work for me. I'm not going to be successful because of the way I look. I'm not expecting to be successful because of my sparkling personality. Some people are. Some people are successful because they're good at dealing with people. They may not know a thing about what they're talking about, but they're good dealing with people, so they're successful. I'm not some... Big whiz business guy. So I'm not going to be successful based on that. You you may not be either. You may not have any of those areas of skill or any of those areas of success going for you. So what can I rely on to be my key to success? 
Joshua 1.8. The Bible says that if I'm meditating in the Word and observe to do it, then I'll make my way successful. I'll make my way prosperous, and I'll have good success. Now, my way is going to be what God called me to do. I can be a success as a pastor by meditating and doing the Word. I can be a success as a minister by meditating and doing the Word. I can be a success as a teacher by meditating in and doing the Word. Now, you can be a success as a mechanic by meditating and doing the Word. Yeah, but wait a minute. I'm not fixing Bibles. I fix cars. How's a mechanic going to be successful by meditating and doing the Word? Because the Word will open up areas of wisdom for you to know how to be a better mechanic. And that works in every area. That works in every area. I don't care if you're a garbage collector. Meditating in the Word and doing it will make you a better garbage collector. It'll bring you favor of God with your bosses. So meditating in and doing the Word will always work. Always. And you know what's an interesting thing about the Word? The Word will have a benefit for you spiritually even when your mind doesn't understand what's all going on yet. Now, we could say, we could certainly understand since, impart, since eternal life has been imparted to our spirits already. The Bible says we have eternal life now. A lot of people think that we're going to have eternal life when we get to heaven. The Bible says you've got it now. The Bible says Jesus came to bring you life and life more abundantly. Well, what would that be if it's not eternal life? Jesus said the same life that's in the Father is in me. That's got to be eternal life. And he said he came to bring it to you. You've got eternal life now. You're not going to have it when you get to heaven. You'll just have a change of location when you get to heaven. You'll still be the same person. You'll still have the same life. So it's clear that God wants you to prosper spiritually, and he accomplished that by giving you eternal life. But if you're going to prosper and have good success in the soulish area and in the physical area, in this natural realm, you're going to have to do something with the word on your own. That brings us to step number three. Step number three is put the word of God first place in your life. Or give the Word of God first place in your life. Give the Word of God first place in your life. Now, folks, I want you to turn back with me to... to uh, well, I didn't leave... Uh, I didn't get to 1 Corinthians 2 yet, did I? Let me show you something about what Paul said to the Corinthians. Now, let me give you the, the background on the Corinthian church. It's full of problems. It's a mess. They've got one guy that's taken his father's wife. Apparently, his father married this young girl. Maybe closer to the age of his son. Son takes a looking, uh, takes a look at her and decides he likes her. She's pretty. So he takes her for his own wife. And the church doesn't do anything about it. Church looks over there and says, oh, isn't that cute? Church doesn't do anything about it. So Paul has to do something about it. He does something about it because he says, if I don't, then sin will get into the church and tear the church up. Church is full of divisions. They've got their favorite preachers. It's very similar to an American church today. Because you got people that are saying, well, I like this preacher best. Well, I'm listening to this one. I'm following this one. Paul says, none of it matters. He said, I'm your spiritual father. He said, you may have a lot of teachers that you like and that you, that you follow and so forth. He said, but you only have one spiritual father and that's me. So he tells them, follow me as I follow Christ. He doesn't try to lord anything over them. He's just trying to get them the information that he knows they need. Now, what else is going on with this church? If this church were taking place today, they would identify themselves as either a spirit-filled church or a Holy Ghost church. Because Paul says in chapter 1 and verse 7, he says, you don't come behind in any good gift. 
In other words, you've got everything that the Holy Ghost has to offer operating in your midst. So much so that later on in the chapter, or later on in the, uh, in the letter, Paul writes to them about what's going on in their services. Man, it is a Holy Ghost high heel time. There's all kinds of speaking with tongues, maybe some interpretation, not too much, but maybe a little bit. People are being prompted by the Holy Ghost to do this over here and that over there. It is a smorgasbord. But Paul's concerned about them. He said, because people are coming in from the outside, and he said, people are thinking you're crazy. You know, one of the greatest revelations I had, that one of the, one of the greatest blessings I have, have ever received from the Word of God is to realize God did not want charismatic people, spirit-filled people to be crazy. Because that's what scared me off. I saw spirit-filled people, people saying, oh, you need to be spirit-filled and be like us. And I'm thinking, I wouldn't be like you for all the money in the world. You folks are nuts. It's just bouncing from one thing to another, one extreme to another. No stability. No steadiness. No wisdom in the, in the bunch. That's the way it is here. And Paul writes to them. Now, he starts off. Paul knows the whole situation. So I, I've kind of given you a synopsis of what Paul knows when he writes. He starts off commending them. He brags on them a little bit. He says in chapter 1, verse 7, he says, you don't come behind any good gift. Man, you guys have got it all. But he knows he's going to have to lower the boom on them a little bit. Try to get them straightened out. Now, in the midst of all this stuff, in the midst of this Holy Ghost experience, by the way, if what was happening in the book of Corinth, or in the church of Corinth, as described in the letter that Paul wrote, is happening in a church today, the church today would call it revival. They just would. They'd say, wow, what a move of God we had. And then say, well, let's do that again next time we come together. But notice what Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul said, But the natural man, verse 14, But the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Another translation says spiritually understood. Now why does he say that to them? Clearly, they've received things of the Spirit of God. He doesn't tell them that the speaking in tongues is not of God. He doesn't tell them that the other manifestations of the Spirit and the other gifts that they don't come behind yet, he doesn't tell them any of that stuff is not God. So it's obvious that the Spirit of God is manifesting himself in their midst. Yet he says the natural man can't receive the things of the Spirit of God. So he can't be talking about them, can he? Well, let's keep reading. Remember, Paul didn't write in chapter and verse. This is a letter. He said in verse 15, But he that is spiritual... Judges all things. Yet he himself is judged of no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Chapter 3. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babies in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. For you are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? Another translation says walk as mere unchanged men. I think that's the amplified. You walk as mere unchanged men. Now can I ask you a question? How do carnal Christians have such a move of the Holy Ghost? Because you know as well as I do, church that has this kind of stuff going on in their services are going to be counted as the pattern for what everybody else is supposed to have. 
aren't they? That's what's happening now. Yet Paul emphasizes that they need teaching. He doesn't say the move of the Holy Ghost is wrong. He's not saying the things that are happening is not the Holy Ghost. He said, but you guys need teaching so that you know how to operate in the things that are happening or know how to cooperate and and how to, to, to give some direction for the things that are happening. So what does he do? He emphasizes teaching. He emphasizes the word. In other words, he says the move of the Holy Ghost is good, but you need to give the word first place. You find somebody that'll do that nowadays, you've got a rare individual. Because most everybody will throw the word away to run after the signs and wonders. Most people will gladly toss the word, toss the teaching out the window so they can run to the place where we can get a feel-good experience, where we can see the show. Jesus didn't take too kindly to the people that came to see the show after he multiplied the loaves and the fishes. One of the biggest crowds Jesus ever had was after he multiplied the loaves and the fishes and fed 5,000. Then it said multitudes, great multitudes came to Jesus. And Jesus said, you're just here because of the miracle I did. Why in the world didn't Jesus do like the church does today and say, well, the miracle is to draw the crowd. I'm so glad you're here. But he didn't. He said, I know why you're here. You're here to see the show. Well, guess what? There ain't going to be a show today. What happened? Crowds left. They came to see their show. You don't give them one, they're out of here. You find somebody that will set aside and place a lower priority on the move of the Spirit and on sensational things and put a higher priority on the Word, you got a very unique individual in that in your hands. You got somebody that'll develop into a spiritual giant. Why in the world didn't Paul write to the Thessalonians and the Ephesians and the Romans and say, you guys need to find out what the Corinthians are doing and do that too? Because you'll find that any place that's having a move of the Spirit without the priority emphasis on the word, is going to be filled with sin. Which is exactly what happened with the church at Corinth. You know something about historically regarding Corinth? Corinth is the only church that we know of. I'm sorry, let me, let me rephrase that. Corinth is the only church that we don't know of that lasted through one generation after Paul established it. Now, there's a church in Corinth today. And there's a church that appears in historical records at different times. But there is a gap from the first generation when Paul started it to other things that we see recorded about the church at Corinth. That's not true with any other church Paul ever started. Every other church, there is a continuous record of that church lasting generation after generation after generation except the church at Corinth. And they're the ones that had the greatest move of the Spirit of anybody we have record of. Turn with me back to... uh, Matthew chapter 4. Now, folks, you need to understand something, especially those of you, well, those of you that are coming to the prayer meetings on Sunday afternoons, you know this already. We're praying for the move of the Holy Ghost. 
Bible says that Jesus is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. The early and the latter rain is always a type in the Bible. It's always a type of the move of the Spirit. So there's a move of the Spirit that's going to be in the last days that will cause the greater, the, the greater glory of the last day church than any other time in the history of the world. If we're reading and interpreting the Scripture correctly. I, I personally don't know how you can misinterpret that. That seems so clear to me, you know, but not everybody agrees. Um. So we're believing for the Spirit of God to move. But we're looking for the Spirit of God to move as He wills. That's the way that Paul tried to tell the Corinthians that things worked. The Spirit of God manifests as He wills, not as you want Him to manifest. Not as you want Him to manifest. And so he tried to encourage them to cooperate with the Spirit. Paul said, look, all the move of the Spirit, all the the speaking in tongues, that's wonderful. He said, I love to do that. I speak with tongues more than all of you. But there's a different way that I operate in the church. So it must be his choice then. Folks, I could start speaking in tongues now. I could speak in tongues for the rest of the service. You know what you'd get out of it? Probably nothing. Now, I'd be blessed by it. Because the Bible says when you speak in an unknown, unknown tongue, your spirit prays. Your spirit is edified. It's built up. It's charged up. So I could spend the rest of our time here together, and I could speak in tongues and leave walking on cloud nine, spiritually charged. But how's that going to help you? Paul understood his responsibility to the church. He understood that his responsibility was to get the things that had been revealed to him out to the people so that they could grow and be blessed by them too. So that's why he put the emphasis on the teaching of the word. That's why he emphasized and, and, and put the priority not on the move of the spirit. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. But folks, don't think that the Holy Ghost moving or directing somebody in some kind of manifestation is greater than the Holy Ghost giving you utterance to speak the word. It's both the Holy Ghost. But that's rare among charismatics. That's rare among spirit-filled people. They want to see the show. So if this is God over here putting on the show, hey, let's have all the show that we can. Yet Paul says, you folks need to have less show and more of the word. Because that's what's going to cause you to grow and develop spiritually. That's what's going to cause spiritual development. Give the word first place. Now here's an example of Jesus giving the word first place. If you want to know what that looks like, here it is. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was led of the Spirit into the wilderness where he to be tempted of the devil, is what King James says. It says where he was tempted of the devil. God didn't take Jesus out into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted. God took Jesus out into the wilderness for the purpose of Jesus consecrating himself to the ministry God had for him. But anytime you consecrate yourself on the heels of that, the devil is going to come and tempt you. Anytime you tell God, I commit myself to you, the devil is going to say, oh, really? Well, what about this? So he began to be tempted of the devil. And it says after, after he had fasted, verse 2, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward hungry. Medical science tells us that on a, a long fast like that, your body starts off hungry, it stops being hungry, and then it comes to a place where it's hungry again, and if you don't feed it then, it's going to die or it start consuming itself, and that's when you start dying. So apparently Jesus was at that point. It must have been by his own choice because nobody could take his life from him. So his consecration to God must have been a part of laying down his life from a physical standpoint so that he could do the purpose, the plan and purpose of God. So the devil came to him when he was at his weakest point. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Well, there's a lesson here. 
You at your weakest point can defeat the devil if you do the same thing Jesus did. So many times we get at our weak point and the devil comes and we think, oh no, what are we going to do now? We'll do what Jesus did. It'll put you over just like it did him. So the devil came, verse 3, and when the tempter came to him, he said, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered, Jesus answered, and said, it is written. Now, folks, I want you to know this first thing before you even get into what he said. The first thing that it tells us is that Jesus put the word of God first place in his life. Now, Jesus has just been anointed by John in the Jordan River. or I'm sorry, baptized by John in the Jordan River. And the anointing of God came down upon Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus had the spirit without measure. Jesus could have turned the, the stones not into bread, but into turkey dinners. His power is not in question, yet that's what the devil questions him. He says, if you're the son of God, then do this. Prove it. You ever notice how many times the devil tries to make you prove something? You're not in the business of proving anything. You're in the business of being a doer of the word. God doesn't need you to prove something. Pastor Mike, pray for me that I be healed so that the doctors will get saved. Oh, yeah, that's in First Hesitations 3, isn't it? <laughs> Where do people get that idea? Well, I've got to get healed so it'll be a good testimony. God doesn't need your testimony. Jesus is a pretty good testimony. God wants you to be healed so that you can take advantage of what Jesus purchased. Not for some testimony. You're not going to save the world no matter what happens. You think doctors haven't seen people healed? Come on. The devil's always trying to get you to prove something. Notice what Jesus did. Jesus shows that the first and foremost priority in his life is the word of God. Because Jesus instantly answers what the Bible says. Now, if he hasn't meditated on the Bible, if he doesn't know what's there, how does he know what to say? That's why it's so important for you to meditate in the Word. That's why it's so important for you to be prepared for the attack before the attack comes. Now, not, ever to, not in every case, not in every case in my life, have I been able to be prepared for the attack before it came. And in situations like that, I recognize I don't know what the Bible says about this. So I'll put the, I'll put the, the, the temptation, the doubt on hold. And I've answered the devil. You know, Mr. Devil, I don't know what the Bible says about this, but it's got to say something. I'll find out and get back to you. And that works just as well. Well, not just as well. It's better when you're prepared up front. But it works. Because the important thing is to have the word first place in your life. Now notice Jesus didn't go find out what the rabbis thought. It's an amazing, to me, amazing thing to me. How many people want to talk about what everybody else says? Jesus doesn't go ask his mom. He's not looking for some input or advice or counsel. I love that. And counsel. That just means you're looking for somebody to tell you what you already want to do. The counsel is the word of God. It's the only thing that you can count on. Because you come to me and ask, I, I won't tell you, but if you come to somebody else and ask, they might tell you the wrong thing. They might mean well, but they might tell you the wrong thing. How are you going to know? Man, I wouldn't trust somebody else to tell me what I'm supposed to do than anything in the world. 
God cares more about me and I care more about me than they do. Why am I looking for what somebody else thinks? Jesus went first and foremost to the word. He said, it is written. What is written? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He's saying the word of God is more important to me than the natural food, the physical food I eat. May I submit to you or suggest the idea that Jesus wouldn't have cared one way or the other if he died right there on the spot, except that he was there to fulfill God's prophecies and the sacrifice? But then personally, what does he care? Live here on the earth with God, live in heaven with God. What does it matter to him? That's a very freeing and liberating position to take, folks. Because the same thing's true for you. Except that there's a work that we have to finish. What do we care? Let's go home. Paul said it's far better to depart and be with Christ. Your best day here on the earth is not even going to count for heaven. Not even compare. So what should we care? But see, we're all trying to protect ourselves. We're all trying to protect our lives. We're all trying to protect our our territory. We're all trying to protect whatever we've got. Who cares? The devil says, I'm going to kill you. Well, except for the, me finishing the plan of God for my life, I wouldn't care. Okay, good. Depart and be with Christ. But I've got some things to do. I've got some things to finish. So I can't die yet. That should be our attitude. We should recognize that God wants to keep us here to finish his plan and purpose. We're not trying to keep ourselves here. I see that in Jesus' response. But still, the important thing is he puts the word first. He puts the word first. It is written. Then the devil tempts him again. Well, okay, that doesn't work. We'll try another tack. The devil took him up into a high, the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if thou be the son of God, still trying to get him to prove it. If thou be the son of God, cast thyself down for it is written. He shall give his angels charge concerning thee and in their hands they shall bear thee up lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. My goodness, the devil's quoting scripture now. He must be right. Jesus said, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. In other words, he puts the word of God in such a place of priority in his life where he's not going to be swayed or deceived by somebody misinterpreting or being wrong about what they think about scripture. Folks, if Jesus did that, wouldn't that be a good thing for you and me to do too? If you and I do that based on the knowledge of the Lord, uh, the knowledge of the word for ourselves and the leading of the Holy Ghost in the word for ourselves, you wouldn't be taken in by people telling you wrong doctrine. John said it this way. He said, you've got an unction from the Holy One and you know all things. You know whether or not something's right or wrong on the inside of you if you'll learn to listen to that voice on the inside. So then the devil tempts him again. Here's the big one. Because this is what the devil thinks Jesus has come for. Again, the devil took him up into an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And said unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Luke's account says, For they have been delivered unto me. Well, when were they delivered unto him? When Adam gave them up. That's when Satan became the god of this world. Now, folks, you can see that even though this uh, Luke's Statement is not here in uh, in Matthew. You can see it very clearly because if it's not a real, if if the devil doesn't really have it in his possession, then it's not a real temptation. And if it's not a real temptation, Jesus would say, "You don't have that power." 
But Jesus answers as if it's a real temptation, which it had to be. Jesus said, it is written. Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. Here's what happens when you put the word of God first place in your life. This is what happens when you put the word of God first place in your life. You know, one of the greatest stories, I love the story of of, uh, uh, Abraham and Isaac offering Isaac on the altar. It's Genesis chapter 22. I love that story. It, it was one of those things that even as a child, when you heard that story, it scared me. There was a, there was a, a fear to it. It was like, oh, wow, what happened there? But there was an excitement on the inside. Now I look back and I see that it was the Holy Ghost. There was an excitement on the inside because there's more to that story than I got from just Isaac laying up on the altar. Abraham raising the knife up, ready to kill him. And what it says to me now is the place that God, that uh, Abraham placed God's word in his life. Because God appears to Abraham and he says, I want you to take off, uh, take Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering or burnt sacrifice. Now, the wording that God used is really interesting because in pl- other places where the Bible says that God instructed the children of Israel to, to, to make a sacrifice, he said it that way, make a burnt offering. But he didn't say that to Abraham. He said, offer him as a burnt sacrifice. So God knew ahead of time what was going to happen. God knew what his part was going to be. He was not going to ever instruct Abraham to kill Isaac. How could God tell somebody to kill somebody else that wasn't, uh, you know, unjust or the enemy of Israel? How is that possible? Well, that's not what God told him to do. God told him to offer him as a sacrifice. In other words, the, the correlation for us is that things are the most, that are the most precious to you, God will sometimes challenge you to offer those up to him to see if you're really committed. Well, there was nothing more precious for Abraham than Isaac. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. It was an impossible birth situation for both Abraham and Sarah. And so now, some 10, 15, 17 years later, maybe something like that, God says to Abraham, I want you to offer Isaac up as a sacrifice. So it doesn't tell us that Abraham argued with God. It doesn't tell us that Abraham talked to God about it. It says that Abraham instructed his servants to saddle the the donkeys. We're going to go to a certain place and offer a sacrifice. So they did. They had everything they needed. They had the wood. They had the fire. They had everything they was going to need for this sacrifice. When the time comes, they get to the foot of the mountain. Abraham says, okay, Isaac and I are going to go up and offer the sacrifice. Now, what's interesting about this is that Abraham's not hesitating. He's obeying the word from God instantly. But he knows God well enough from having walked with him all these years, maybe maybe 35, 40 years at this point in time. He knows him well enough from this point to know this can't be the end. What I'm imagining and what I would expect a normal burnt sacrifice ending to be can't be the end here because God promised me children through this boy. This boy has to live. So Abraham tells his servants, Isaac and I will return. We're going to go up on the mountain and offer a sacrifice and we'll return to you. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, I think it is, says that Abraham accounted God as able to raise Isaac from the dead if necessary. And he even also received him, already received him as such in a figure. Now, the King James language is a little bit difficult, but it means one of two things or maybe both. It means he received Isaac is already raised from the dead if that's what it was going to take. But then the figure could not only be 
saw it in, in, within himself, within his spirit, that that would be the case, but he saw that as a figure of Jesus being raised from the dead too. So it could be either one or both. So Isaac get, puts the wood on his back. He puts the, all the stuff. They start climbing the mountains. His dad's 100 and 110, 115, maybe 100, up to 120 years old, somewhere around that territory. So they're walking up the mountain. Isaac finally gets to the top. He says, well, Dad, he said, we got everything except the sacrifice. Didn't we forget what we're supposed to kill? And Abraham says, son, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. Now comes the moment of truth. He has Isaac prepare the altar. He has Isaac prepare the fire. He has Isaac set everything in motion. He says, now, Isaac, I need you to lay down up there. Let me tie your hands and your feet. If there is one story, one Bible story I would love to see, this is the one. How does he, physically, there's no way he could do it. His dad's over 100. His son's an early to to mid to late teenager. We don't know for sure. He could be anywhere from 13 to 17 years old, maybe something like that. Physically, he couldn't make him do it. Isaac has to be willing. How does his dad talk him into being willing for that? For me, there's only one answer, and that is he has along the way or even at that moment in time telling his son. He has to be telling his son the faithfulness of God. He has to be explaining to his son, son, I know this looks bad, but God always comes through. This may look impossible, but you and I are walking down this mountain. Isaac is on the altar. Abraham's willing to take this all the way through. He raises the knife. The angel comes and stops him, grabs his hand and stops him and says, no. The word of the Lord comes and says, now that I know that since you haven't withheld your son, neither will I withhold mine. In other words, this is a covenant test. This is a test of commitment. This is not about a sacrifice of a human life. This is about a sacrifice of Abraham's life. In commitment. Look at the place that God's word held in his life. That he would be willing to do something like that. Would you do that with your kids? I'd like to be sound spiritual and say, yeah, I could believe God for that. But could you really? I don't have an answer to that, folks. I've thought about that for years. I thought at what point? Do you come to the realization? Now, granted, I don't have the same promise where my kids are concerned that Abraham had with his. Abraham's looked at the stars of the sky and God told him this will be through Isaac. He's got to live. So maybe that was what would gave him the faith to be able to do that, that I wouldn't have because God hadn't put me in the same situation. I don't know. But boy, I'd have a hard time putting my son up there. Wouldn't you? Look at the place a priority that God's word held in Abraham's life. After years and years and years of walking with, a, with God, walking and seeing God's faithfulness, look at the place of priority God's word brought in Abraham's life or came to in Abraham's life. Folks, step number four for developing the human spirit is instantly obeying the voice of your spirit. You know what the problem is with a lot of Christians? And here it is. This, it's the, it's the, the party. It's the, the, spontane, the, the spectacular. It's the, the show part. A lot of people want to jump to step four. 
without taking steps two, one, two, and three. That's like trying to open a combination that's got four numbers by only using the last number. It's the Word of God that, that equips your spirit so that you can hear from the Holy Ghost effectively. So that it causes you to, to know and realize the voice of the Holy Ghost. One of the things that... Um, well, I don't know. Should I take time with this? Now we're out of time. We'll start. We'll, we'll pick up on that next time. Thank God for the voice of the Holy Ghost. You know, one of the things that Jesus said about the Spirit of God, He said two things. He said, the Holy Ghost will bring all things to your remembrance. Whatsoever I've said to you. That's why it's so important to put yourself in the knowledge of the Word of God to begin with. Because you can't be reminded of something you never knew. That's where meditating in the Word comes. The Holy Ghost will open your understanding. He will bring back to your remembrance. Now, there have been times, there have been a couple of times, and they're very rare, where the Holy Ghost has spoken scriptures to me that I didn't know were in the Bible. And, and, and those times, there were two times specifically. They were things regarding the church, not regarding my personal life. There were things regarding the church, and I said, where is that? Lord, where is that? And as soon as I said that, the Lord answered me with the Scripture and the verse. So I went to the Bible, and I found what was there, and I saw the context was something that would help me. But that is far and away the most rare thing to occur. The Holy Ghost doesn't normally tell you Scriptures that you don't know. He brings Scriptures to your remembrance that you've once known. And that's one of the things Jesus said the Holy Ghost would do. He said He would bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said to you. Another thing he said was, he'll show you things to come. He'll show you things to come. You know, the, the greatest revelation I've had about the Lord showing me things to come have been through the, the Scriptures. Now, there are some times where he shows me things about people's lives and, and stuff like that. And, and you know, um, I remember uh, when I was working with Brother Hagen, I'd see things like that happen in him, and I'd think, oh, Man, if that ever happened with me, that'd just be the best of everything. Now there are things that I've seen that the Lord has instructed me not to tell. There have been things I've seen in people's lives. There have been things that I've known about people and about things that were coming down the road for them. And, and the purpose for me knowing that was so that I could teach them the Word to help equip them, be ready for when it came. But I, I, there was one time that I said, uh, I got it in prayer, and I said, Oh, Lord, I'm going to tell them about that. I need to warn them about that. And he said, Don't say a word. He said, I didn't tell you to go blab all through everybody. Oh, what would you show me for? So that you could help them with the word. It's not the vision that you had that's going to put them over. It's the word that's going to put them over. Isn't it interesting how the Lord always brings you back to the word? You know why that is? I want you to look at the scripture before we go. Psalm 138. I've referred to this before, but I want you to see this. I'm not sure I ever took you over to it. Psalm 138. Folks, I want you to ingrain this scripture in your mind. Because this is one of the principles, the never-changing principles of God's word that will put you over if you understand it. Psalm 138, Psalm of David, beginning in verse 1. I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. You found it yet? Psalm 138. Notice verse 2. He said, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For, because, what are you saying, David? You're saying you're going to praise God for his truth. Why? Because God has magnified his word above all his name. 
That means God places a greater priority on his word than he does his power or his position. And that's what name means. Name always means power. It always means position. And it says God has emphasized his word above his power and his position. That should be the same attitude that we have toward God's word. It's greater than his power. It's even greater than his position as the creator of the universe. That means for our answers, for our deliverance, for our healing, for our help, we need to go to God's word. When you understand that, it'll change your prayer life. Because you'll not be praying, oh, God, do something. You'll be praying his word. You won't be looking for other people to tell you what you ought to do. You'll find out what his word says. It may make you unpopular in some circles, but it'll make you victorious in every circle. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to put it first place. Lord, we thank you for the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the manifestations of the Spirit. We thank you for moving in these last days, but never, ever, ever are we going to let those things of the Spirit take precedence over the word of God in our lives. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never fail. What a privilege it is, Father, to renew our minds to your word, to meditate in it, and to be a doer thereof. Thank you, Father, for those that commit themselves anew and afresh to make the word of God the priority the foremost thing in their lives from this day forward. So that no matter what situation we encounter, our first question is, what does the Word say? And as we meditate therein, and as we do it, we thank you, Father, that you lead us into victory in every aspect of our lives. Not one area do we give an inch to the enemy. But instead, we accomplish the victory that Jesus won through your word and the power thereof. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. Don't forget the newcomer's coffee. It'll get started here in just a few moments. God bless you. Have a great day.